because I had that heavy duty involvement in my community and with various advocacy organizations, I was looked at as essentially sleeping with the enemy. Indigenous perspectives. Indigenous perspectives. Indigenous perspectives. Stories from Indigenous public servants. Kansei. This is Indigenous Perspectives, a program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. Cindy Blackstock, professor of social work at McGill University, has devoted over 25 years of her life to child protection and Indigenous children's rights. She shared a lot of wisdom in many journal articles and interviews, more than I could recite in their entirety, but I gathered some of my favorite quotes to share with you to illustrate her dream for the future. She said, I really believe that the greatness of the country and of our joint society is bound up in the possibility of raising a generation of First Nations who never have to recover from their childhoods, and a group of non-Indigenous children who never have to say they're sorry. There's a famous study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which showed that when children have multiple experiences of harm, it could be a child who is in a home where there are multi-generational effects of residential schools, where there is poverty, where there is no clean drinking water, as is the case in one in six First Nations communities, and where they're going to a lousy school. If you add up all those things, those experiences are going to play out well through their adulthood. In fact, it even puts them at a higher risk for things like coronary disease and diabetes. The seeds we plant in childhood have lifelong consequences. If we plant seeds of discrimination, then we set in play a strong likelihood of a tragic and difficult adulthood. But if we plant seeds of justice and equality and culture that breeds self-confidence, we're going to see those same positive experiences grow throughout their lives. What I don't want to see is another generation of First Nations adults having to recover from their childhoods, as so many survivors of the residential schools have had to do and as so many families of the murdered and missing women are now doing. As a country, we need to do better than continuing this long-standing pattern of discrimination against First Nations children, young people, and their families. They deserve equality going forward. Reconciliation to me is about not having to say sorry a second time. And now, in their own words, the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants about their experiences of the realities of being an Indigenous person.
What does it mean to be an Indigenous employee in the workplace? What are the realities that you see that maybe other people aren't aware of? At first, it wasn't recognized. Uh, Fifteen years ago, when I started, it was I had mentioned it to my manager, and it was sort of uh, nothing. Uh, I may as well have been a piece of the furniture. So that was the attitude that I first faced. I don't have that anymore. I'm very well recognized. I received the Deputy Minister's for ESBC Award for my work. Uh, It's different. Very, very different. Anybody who works in the public services is going to tell you that it's a great job, but it's, it's pretty frustrating. There's a lot of indecision in general, decisions, and uh, a lot of decisions by committee. I find that being an Aboriginal doesn't really affect too much of my job. You know, there's always a little bit of subvert. It's not quite racism, but, you know, people make jokes here and there. And, and I didn't, at the time, I wasn't even really realizing, you know, why they do that, you know, and I just kind of play along. But you deal with a lot of this kind of underhanded, just not cool stuff, you know. It, it, it's not cool. The other thing is, is you know, some recent examples of some of the harassment and discrimination that I'm hearing about that are that Indigenous uh, employees are, are are experiencing uh, in some parts of the country, and we're going to do a little bit more work and research to find out how widespread this might be, and we're expecting that it probably is fairly widespread. There needs to be a lot more training, cultural competency training, cultural competency development within the public service as a whole. And I know within ESTC, uh, again, our deputy minister's uh, uh, message today just, uh, you know, just uh, affirms that more needs to be done. So I want to, like, go back to when I first started, which was in 2004. Because I had that heavy-duty involvement in my community and with various advocacy organizations, I was looked at as essentially sleeping with the enemy. Like, it was, I was called a traitor, and they're like, oh, you're a sellout, you're this, you're that. So people who are very heavily into the grassroots movement, people who expected me to go on, on that path, like be more, a bit more radical, a bit more, you know, acting as an external force. And I, I like to see it as acting as an internal force. So I stayed in the public service because it seemed like a better, I would have better chances of affecting some kind of change from within the machine rather than throwing rocks from the outside. But, um, it can be, it can be really tough to overcome that kind of perspective from people in the community. Um, so I, I've had to remain connected to my community in other ways and remain connected to like the broader, broader indigenous Canada, I guess, through other things, like other ways to volunteer and appear that I hadn't been totally co-opted by the government.
I thought I'd tell three really short stories of how I witnessed Indigenous employees, you know, friends, colleagues, people I knew, people I worked with, running up against some real difficult moments in their work for different reasons. It all came down to they had a job to try and advance an issue and they were trying to bring their expertise to it the best they could. And they encountered resistance in different ways. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to sit in on a couple of uh, uh, working-level interdepartmental review meetings where we would talk about... Uh, I, I think I can talk about this. I'm not going to... I'm not revealing any state secrets. But when you, when you uh, bring forward an MC, there are interdepartmental and, and internal uh, review meetings set up where people basically kind of go around the room and, and uh, talk through their concerns about... Uh, a memo to cabinet or a TB submission or, or a draft law or something. So in this particular meeting, I, 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 was, I watched someone I, I knew who was working basically for a program that, that was focused on Northern issues. And her job in that meeting was to basically do the classic challenge function thing of, have you made sure that this document reflects the concerns that have been raised by people in the North and in this situation? And so she spoke, and, and as, as she spoke, I watched uh, the other people in the room. And it was like all the oxygen went out of the room. People put their pens down, they put their heads down, let her talk about how all the ways uh, this document was missing the Northern First Nations perspective or missing the, the, the Inuit community's perspective or so on. And when she was done, they lifted their heads, picked up their pens, and the meeting went on. And it was like they basically tuned her out. And I realized that this was happening again and again because I went to another meeting another time on another document and uh, she had the same job. And uh, it was a completely different file, but she went through the document, pointed out the places where the northern perspectives were missing, and again, the same thing happened. The pens went down, heads went down, everyone went silent. She finished... Heads came back up and pens got picked up and the meeting went on. Now, this was a person who I, I respected and, and, and she had a job. It was the classic challenge function job, represent the perspective. And I could see the, the people in the room were basically just choosing not to hear what she was saying or not to, not to put much stock in it. My colleagues, they, they live a pretty, pretty well furnished life. You know, they have, they have everything they could ask for, really. And uh, they're kind of going towards goals that are luxuries in life. And uh, growing up, um, we weren't, you know, we weren't, the, uh, um, we weren't exactly poor, but we weren't, we weren't well off. So uh, I, lived, I lived through some pretty poor times and some pretty uh, hard times in my life. You know, times where I wasn't homeless, but for all intents and purposes, you know, uh, you could have said so. You know, there's times when uh, I was, uh, you know, struggling just in life, uh, not suicidal, but just struggling in life for a purpose, for, you know, what am I going to do? Why am I around? Why? What's the point? Uh, I don't think a, a whole lot of people, uh, my colleagues, really have ever, ever experienced that kind of, I'm trying to struggle to find the word, but it's, uh, it's kind of like uh, the privileged life that they have. They, they don't realize how, how privileged it was. And it, it is inviting. Uh, you know, wealthy lives, and I'm, I'm talking about. I'm just talking about 
the basic things of having, you know, two parents there your entire life, you know, a couple of brothers and sisters, and then you go to college and you get a job. Uh, that, that was never a certainty in my life. Um, when I finished high school, I kind of went job to job, and, and I was jobless for a very long time in a small town with no prospects as any new industry coming. And it was, uh, it was a really big struggle. It can be tough. It's a tough sell, like going back to the community and talking to young people about, hey, you should work for the government of Canada, because the government of Canada is seen as the enemy. They're seen as um, the purveyor of empty promises. So it's, uh, it's hard to give a convincing argument for why somebody should come work for the government of Canada or, like, much less work with the government of Canada on any kind of joint anything. Because there's, uh, even in my lifetime, like, I'm only 36, but people who are generations ahead of me in my family, they've, they've lived that life of, like, consistent disappointment with the government of Canada, whether it's been in band administration, program administration, like, my, my mom, She's a director of economic development for our community. And my grandfather used to be the band manager. So they were essentially hand to mouth for programs to deliver to communities. And they're just constantly fighting, I guess, to try to find some kind of equity somewhere for the community. So yeah, it's a bit tough to say, hey, I work for the government of Canada. I'm, I'm this, that, and the other thing. Another time, uh, some people I knew were working on with. They were working across departments on a on a project, and I can't get too specific about this. Uh, but they were working across departments on a project where the the, the departments really had to uh, represent a single government of Canada voice uh, in working with the Indigenous community representatives that were that were there at the table. And these guys, again, and I knew them pretty well, and they had. They had worked with uh, with these community uh, stakeholders in the past and, 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 and had ideas on how to move things forward. But it became a, a point of resistance between the departments that were at the table. And when these guys I knew tried to advance, uh, tried to push, uh, eventually uh, someone uh, raised an alarm that these guys were, were trying to undermine the government of Canada's position and take the side of the Indigenous stakeholders uh, instead. The impolite expression for this is going native, and so they got they got attacked on that basis, and uh, it became a bit of a thing. And there was uh, there were some meetings, and it all eventually got resolved. But those guys, uh, their feelings were pretty badly hurt in that process. Uh, they had put themselves on the line; they'd put their reputations on the line to try and help things along, and they got attacked. And the part of the basis for the attack was that they were indigenous and that they had. They had connections to the people we were working with, and that became not a, a source of strength, but it became uh, something negative, something uh, that made the made it uh, so that they couldn't be trusted. That was really uh, eye-opening, not in a good way. The 
we need to address some of these things that are happening in a very in a very serious way and we need to make sure that there are there is cultural competency training and uh, given to all employees but more in particular supervisors managers directors you know senior leaders right up the line i think there there needs to be a lot more work done with respect to cultural competency uh, conflict management, uh, problem solving, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and again, uh, tr- truth and reconciliation recommendation number 57 speaks to all those things. So I really think that uh, there's a big job there and, and we really need to get at the heart of some of these things through that, that commitment and the high priority that we have right now in making these, these things happen. So now our ADM uses the Indigenous Advisory Circle, you know, to look at any new policies and some of the policy change. So we sit on the Sector um, Executive Policy Committee. We also sit on the Executive HR Committee for the sector. And so we put in commitments in uh, the HR plan. And it's not just about 50% hiring. It's about getting managers to attend awareness workshops that we hold and our EDM pays for that. So we hire people to come in and they talk about, you know, Metis or they talk about, uh, you know, uh, First Nations and we're just starting to open it up to Inuit people. I feel that it's a position of tremendous power because it gives me this opportunity to kind of check people on their their biases and I'm not I'm doing it very gently like I'm just like oh by the way I'm first nation or whatever they all come up in conversation and they have to really evaluate themselves I like to kick the hornet's nest in that way as an education sort of thing but I also like to I also like to provide a challenge function in a way to uh, decision makers and my colleagues when it comes to indigenous issues. I like, I like to, I like to speak from my own experience, but I'm also not a representative of all of indigenous Canada or the indigenous experience because my experience is very different than many of my indigenous colleagues here in the department. My experience in the public service has greatly improved because of the SICAD and because of the Prime Minister's mandate for Indigenous people in our department. It's been a really good and positive experience. I feel free to express what I need. I feel free to raise the awareness on Indigenous people. I feel free to uh, say what's right and what's and what I disagree with. And when I speak, that truth comes from my heart. I speak from my heart. The third story, and again, this is more, you know, standard for this type of thing happens all, like it happens all the time across government. And this, I can say, we, we, we were working in 
and in the statistics field and and what are the projects what are the products that our directorate had uh, developed over the years was analyzing and this is going to get technical analyzing census data to see how many first nations people how many people were moving from reserves to cities how many people were moving from cities to reserves and so on this was of interest because the government in the 90s especially had been was criticized and so, and to some extent we're still criticized to this day of underfunding programs basically to encourage uh, people to leave reserves and go to cities and if you follow the the headline census announcement announcements uh, going back into the 96 census or the 2001 census there was a lot of immediate attention to the fact that the urban indigenous population was growing and so the headline in the globe and mail uh, the proverbial headline in the globe and mail would be there's an exodus from reserves the thing is though you can use census data to check that and see uh, how many people are moving uh, from one place to another and the analysis that we had produced, our colleagues and predecessors over the years had produced, uh, showed that, that that wasn't the case. There's uh, there's a lot, a much more nuanced set of things happening where people are moving from reserves to cities in large numbers, but there are also people moving back from cities to reserve in large numbers. And you also have other dynamics at play. So one of the things that our shop would do over the years would be to pass that briefing up the line. And over the years, uh, new executives would come in, new ministers would come in. And I started to realize uh, over time that we had to send that briefing up over and over again. And it, 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 it came to realize that we were really fighting a losing battle, making the case that, okay, this is, this is what the data says, and it might not be perfect, but this is at least uh, a little bit of nuance to compared to what's in the Globe and Mail. But the, the audience that we would be sending this stuff to, political or otherwise, either wasn't ready to hear it or was surprised and wanted to know more. But by the time we would get around to telling that story, new people would come in and we'd have to start all over again. So the reason I'm telling all these stories is watching this as an Indigenous person, we talk about the scale and the scope of the challenges uh, that the, the government of Canada has to deal with as far as uh, renewing a relationship with Indigenous peoples and communities, engaging in reconciliation, all the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Report, and so on, closing social, uh, socioeconomic gaps. If you're an Indigenous person coming to this set of issues, uh, and you see, okay, well, what are the levers to make the case and make change? Well, you have the, you can go the evidence-based route. That's not always successful. You can actually have a policy challenge function role in government, but if you do that, you 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 run the risk of if even if you have that job, you run the risk of not being listened to. So you have to be very cognizant of how you do that job, and it's uh, not uh, always straightforward. And lastly, if you speak from an authentic place and just try to bring your expertise and relations and connections directly to bear as you know as trying to help the cause you run the risk of being criticized or questioned as far as your motives for doing that and it's not i'm not telling these stories to go all debbie downer it's just uh, to illustrate there are a lot of challenges that a person may face trying to bring themselves to work so to speak so when we talk about 
how Indigenous employees engage in the public service and how they contribute. Obviously, we do a million different things and a million different types of jobs, work in, in Parks Canada, work in service, work in uh, IT, work in policy programs, you name it. When it comes to bringing ourselves to work, it can feel sometimes that there are a lot of challenges in how to do that. So that's why a lot of the focus, when the, the fact that there's so much focus on reconciliation and renewing relationships now, it's a really interesting opportunity. But at the same time, there's also a lot of, uh, a lot of questions about how to do it well. Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Andrea Dykstra, Jeanette Fraser, Ryan Jador, Daniel Chate, Pamela Capuena, and Tim Lowe. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat, with additional music provided by Chris Dirksen and Greg Ryder. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.